This is The Guardian. Today, what happened to Naomi Klein when she took a trip into a mirror world of conspiracies? Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This story actually began well over a decade ago. So in 2011, it was after the global financial crisis. There had been movements spreading in response around the world. And finally, it came to the heart of the financial district on Wall Street and Occupy Wall Street kicked off. And I was there, I was doing some interviews with some of the Occupy Wall Street organizers. Naomi Klein, best-selling author of No Logo and The Shock Doctrine, influential books about capitalism and power, was reporting on the Occupy movement. There was a march that day and I was marching and uh, needed to use the loo, as you say over there, and uh, found a public restroom and it was crowded with marchers. And I overheard a conversation. There was two women, fellow marchers, who were suddenly talking about me. And they were, one of them said, you know, did you hear what Naomi Klein said? And then the other one was like, oh God, you know, she really does not understand our demands. And, you know, I froze just having mean girl high school flashbacks hearing these people talking about some terrible thing I had written. And then gradually it dawned on me that they were not actually talking about me, though they were using my name. They were talking about another writer named Naomi, uh, Naomi Wolf. Naomi Wolf, best-selling author of The Beauty Myth, part of the Bill Clinton campaign in the 90s, a one-time consultant to presidential candidate Al Gore. So I came out of out of the stall and I, I made eye contact in the mirror and said words that I would say many times again in the months and years to come, which was, I think you have the wrong Naomi. I think you're talking about Naomi Wolf. As the years went on, this would happen to Naomi Klein over and over again. In the public imagination, she had a doppelganger, Naomi Wolf. It might have been easy to shrug off at first. But what would happen if your doppelganger fell down a conspiracy rabbit hole? What if they began loudly and publicly promoting wild and dangerous ideas? So if you're a dissident, you can always be positive for COVID. And there is no way to challenge it, no way to verify it. And you'll be in a second class category in society for the rest of your life. So Klein began to research, and she didn't just find a distorted mirror image of herself. She found a mirror world where an alternate reality is shaping the societies we live in. From The Guardian, I'm Nasheen Iqbal. Today in Focus, what Naomi Klein learned from studying the disturbing world of her doppelganger. 
Naomi Klein, your new book, Doppelganger, is your most exposing and personal work to date. But it's not just about you. It's partly about another Naomi, Naomi Wolf. And for anyone interested in 90s feminism and anti-capitalism, particularly for me as a teenager, those two books by the two of you, No Logo and The Beauty Myth, respectively, were hugely influential. Can you tell me what you thought about Naomi Wolf back then? Well, The Beauty Myth came out when I was in first year university, no, maybe second year university. And it was kind of thrilling. It was the backlash years to feminism. So suddenly there were a couple of big books that were getting a lot of mainstream attention, proudly using the word feminist to describe themselves. Her first book, The Beauty Myth, was named one of the 70 most significant books of the century by the New York Times. I am pleased to have her here to talk about these new ideas. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Great to have you here. So I remember when she came to my university dorm, kind of amazing. I mean, this wasn't like a huge hall or anything like that because the book hadn't gotten that big yet. This was 1990. And so she spoke in a small common room and we gathered cross-legged on the Broadloom carpet listening to this very confident and probably it, it mattered to us that she was quite beautiful, cool looking person talk about how beauty ideals, really unattainable beauty ideals, were holding us back as young women in university or uh, entering the workplace because we were spending so much time on the labor of beauty. So yeah, it was, it was an important book for baby feminists in university when I, when I was coming up. So we're really giving girls the message, even in all this rhetoric of freedom, that they should be sexually available, but not sexually in charge of themselves. So you've told us about the moment when you were first confused in public, in a toilet, no less, for Naomi Wolf. You had written The Shock Doctrine about disaster capitalism, and then later, this changes everything about the climate crisis. But the two of you kept getting mixed up in people's minds. What was she writing about in that period? So in her early years, like the first probably four books that she wrote were really all in the sort of the third wave feminist vein. She wrote about childbirth, she wrote about becoming a mother, and sexual expectations for young women. She wrote about kind of power feminism. I wrote The End of America because I was seeing that in the U.S., there were these 10 steps being put in place by the Bush administration that I realized you always see when it would be dictators. Things, I, I think, changed and things got more confusing because I'm not identified primarily as a feminist writer, though, though I am a feminist, but I write more about corporate power and attacks on democracy. And in 2007, she wrote a book called The End of America, which was an argument about the stages that societies go through moving from an open society to a closed society, an authoritarian society. So I looked at uh, Italy in the 20s, Germany in the 30s, Russia in the 30s, East Germany in the 50s, Czechoslovakia. After the publication of that book, her writing became a lot more like what I would describe as speculative. Like she would just announce, you know, George W. Bush is not going to allow the 2008 elections to take place with no evidence, but it would get a lot of attention online. And so she started becoming more speculative in what she would post about. You know, she would talk about 5G. She would talk about chemtrails. She would speculate that maybe ISIS beheadings were crisis actors. But it was really, really all over the map. It wasn't like 
it was more like being a conspiracy influencer. Like you're just moving from one topic to the next, getting traction, you know, getting cloud online, but there isn't a coherence to it. It's not like you're laying out your case in a detailed way, the way I would argue maybe a, a more thorough conspiracy theorist might do. This is sometimes called conspiracy without the theory. Well, in the book, you write about one particular infamous incident and one that you think may have set Naomi Wolf or the other Naomi, as you call her, on an alternate path. Can you tell me what happened? Yeah, I think there were a few incidents where she was getting pushed further and further out of the world where she had grown up, come of age, and in which she had faith. You know, one of the things I argue in the book is that the biggest difference between me and Naomi Wolf, the difference that I care about is not that she has blue eyes and I have brown ones. It's that she is a liberal, somebody who really believed in the Democratic Party, believed in the meritocracy, went up its ladders. Her feminism was a feminism that was really about women getting access to elite power. And I am you know, really, with no apologies, a leftist. I think there were a few things that pushed her out of what I would describe the house of liberalism. So in 2019 was, you know, a reputational meltdown. And honestly, I don't like dwelling on it very much because I'm sure it was the hardest day of her life. I write about it very briefly in the book. I found like several dozen executions, uh, but that was again only looking at the um, Old Bailey records and the crime tables. Uh, several originally. dozen executions. Correct. And this corrects a misapprehension um, that is in every website that the last man was executed for sodomy in Britain in, in 1835. I don't, I don't think you're right about this. Your listeners will probably remember this interview on BBC when it was discovered live on the air that she had made some foundational errors in that book. Thomas Silver wasn't executed. Death recorded. I, I was really surprised by this and I, I, I looked it up. Death recorded is, the, is what's in, I think, most of these cases that you've, uh, um, you've identified as executions. It doesn't mean that he was executed. I don't think any of the executions you've identified here actually happened. Well, that's a really important thing to investigate. See, I think this, I think this is a kind of... When I found this, I didn't really know what to do with it because I think, it is, I think it's quite a big problem with your argument. So for people who might not remember it, this is the moment in 2019, live on air, that the entire premise of Naomi Wolf's new book called Outrages was shown to be false. She had believed she'd unearthed evidence of dozens of executions of gay men in Victorian England, but she had fundamentally misunderstood the wording in historical records. And from there, the book was withdrawn and then pulped. She was humiliated. So there you are, the facts in a wolf's clothing. Mm -hmm. That's one way to generate publicity for your book. But wow, that is a brutal fact check, live to air. The more significant part of that, and I think it's very good that those errors were found, and I think we should take facts seriously. We should all do better fact checking and all do better you know, accountability when it comes to the work we put out in the world. If we make mistakes, we should be held accountable, which is, I think, what the BBC was trying to do. But that is different from what happened afterwards, which was an absolutely spectacular and kind of grotesque internet pile-on. And I would describe it as internet bullying. I think it raises the question of what happens to people who get turned into a spectacle uh, on mm. liberal and left Twitter. This is 2019. It's less than a year before the pandemic lockdown. And so I think that reputational meltdown really meant that she was no longer ever really going to have access to the 
audiences, readers that she depended upon, including for her income. And so she had to, you know, I quote Rosie Boycott saying, you know, she had to find another realm where she could get another audience. And of course she would become a star there. One person who apparently is not afraid to speak up is Naomi Wolf, who is undoubtedly losing friends by appearing on the show tonight. I never thought I would be talking to you except in a debate format. I'm sure we disagree on an awful lot. So Naomi Wolf had been laughed out of the world she knew and had come up in. Then the pandemic hits a year later. She finds herself online a lot and maybe grasping for a new audience. What exactly did Wolf begin claiming in those years? Well, I think she was just part of a network of misinformation. Hi. Hi, everyone. It's Naomi Wolf, CEO of Daily Cloud. And as I promised, I'm here to talk about the vaccine passports. I've, I appeared on Fox yesterday uh, to share my warning about the vaccine passports, and I got hundreds and hundreds of emails. We're all familiar with it, and it's not particularly unique, and I'm not sure of the utility of rehashing all of the COVID conspiracy theories now, but pretty much name it, you know, and she probably either said it in her own voice or amplified somebody else saying it. So why has this whole coronavirus insanity had the effect of weakening the West? Well, it's the Chinese Communist Party in alliance with big tech. So while Naomi Wolf was going through all of this and going even further down the conspiracy rabbit hole, People were still mixing the two of you up, and many thought that it was actually you, Naomi Klein, who now believed bonkers ideas and was promoting them all over right-wing media channels. It must have been infuriating. The reason I got interested in my doppelganger is less because it was annoying to be confused with her, because sure, okay, but because in the COVID period, she kind of became a doppelganger of her former self. Like there were all of these articles that came out in this period of, you know, whatever happened to Naomi Wolf? Why is she behaving this way? How did she go from being this prominent feminist, a Democratic Party advisor, to somebody who is spreading all of this medical misinformation, getting kicked off Twitter, and so on? So because I was seeing that happen with not just her, but with many people, I think, you know, I've spoken to so many people since I started doing this work, who tell me, you know, I can't talk to my sister anymore. I, my father, you know, has gone down the rabbit hole. He, he's not himself. He's altered. He's different. And I thought, well, maybe this is an interesting kind of narrow aperture through which to look at this much broader and chaotic phenomenon. A lot of people who are not vaccinated are confirming, and this is my experience, that you can't, people don't have no scent anymore. Like you, they don't smell like there's a human being in the room. And they don't where it becomes complex for me is, and I, I really want to be clear that I don't think this is intentional. She was telling a story about COVID that was kind of like a twisted doppelganger of the shock doctrine because she was talking about how elites in Davos and China, Gates, Fauci wanted this crisis so that they could track and surveil us or possibly even call us. She started talking about a vaccine genocide. So, you know, as you know, the, the shock doctrine talks about abuses of power during states of emergency. So the confusion between us really started speeding up when she started doing that. So this is a massive attack on on the West um, by China or a massive attack using China. 
um, you know, the World Economic Forum perhaps. As you say, a lot of people in the pandemic were glued to their screens, locked inside. And I wonder, while you're watching Naomi Wolf create this, what seems like this whole other persona, and it's getting bigger and bigger, what was the tipping point for you? Why did you decide that it was time to actually write about it and not just comment on it, write a whole book about it? Well, this is not a revenge book. You know, this is not a book to get her. I'm not interested in in adding to the pile of bullying that I think she's already experienced. I got interested in this instead of being horrified by it. You know, I started thinking about and reading about what the meaning of having a doppelganger is. And it is just this fascinating topic. They're this very useful tool to look at things that are hard to look at directly. And so they provide a double, a way to look indirectly. And so it occurred to me that I could use this strange experience that I was having of having a doppelganger to explore a range of things that were very much on my mind and that I thought were at play in this kind of collective unhinging that we experienced during the pandemic. But also, and I think much more significantly and ominously, so many of these works of art that I referenced about the figure of the doppelgangers are ways of looking at the rise of fascism and authoritarianism in societies. Because what we most fear is, is that our society has a doppelganger of itself, that our society has an evil twin, and that we could tip at any moment. And, you know, I have friends in India who you know, send me messages going, it's happened. Like we've tipped into the doppelganger of ourselves. We've tipped into our evil twin. I have friends in Italy that send me messages like that. And I feel it in my own country in Canada. I feel it here in the US where I am now. So it's a helpful tool. You know, I think about Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator that came out in 1940, his way of exploring that shadow world. Naomi, you've talked about some of the obsessions that you've discovered in writing this book. And I guess one of them was your own in terms of the research that you were doing. And I wonder if you can tell me about the extent and breadth of that and where it took you. There is always an obsessive quality to any kind of deep research. And for me, this was this was no exception. And this book is not about Naomi Wolf, but she is kind of my white rabbit from Alice in Wonderland leading me down the rabbit hole. And then it really becomes about the rabbit hole and who else I meet down there, including, I think, some much more consequential figures who are engaging in much more consequential forms of doppelganging and doubling and warped mirroring. War Room. Pandemic. Here's your host, Stephen K. Bannon. Welcome live from uh, Capitol Hill. It is War Room Pandemic. It is So Wolf started becoming a regular on Steve Bannon's show in the spring of 2021. So walk us through the details. Sure. And if you step back and think about it, why would they not? I mean, I, you know, one I, of the reasons why he is such an influencer figure is because he broadcasts daily for a long time. He puts out about 17 hours of content a week. And at one point she was on his show every single day uh, for two weeks. They published a book together. They put out t-shirts together. <laughs> Big breaking news. I want to make sure the audience gets access into your site. Tell us what you got, ma'am. Another gigantic, shocking tragedy, a uh, huge story broken by the War Room Daily Clout, Pfizer Documents Research Volunteers. Um, it's not like she was just an occasional uh, a presence. She, she almost had the status of a co-host on Steve Bannon's War Room. And this is just my excuse 
for why I had to multitask uh, in order to keep up with the goings on <laughs> in the mirror world. So that meant that I was listening to these podcasts in every interstitial moment of my life, you know, driving on the way back from dropping my kid off at school, you know, walking the dog, folding laundry. And then yes, in the evenings, I like to do some relaxing yoga. Um, and there was one moment when, when my husband walked in on me, you know, in pigeon pose and I lunged, he jokes that I would lunge for my phone to turn off war room pandemic. It doesn't sound like relaxing yoga, Naomi. Well, somebody said to me recently that I was I was toxing and detoxing at the same time. <laughs> you also write that, you know, this was this was hours and hours, hours that you could have spent learning a new language. And it's such an intense amount of research. What did you learn as our frontline correspondent from the mirror world? Listening to Steve Bannon, so you don't have to. I mean, what interested me most, because, you know, I have followed Steve Bannon over the years not firsthand though, it was more like Steve Bannon as refracted through articles in The Guardian and The New York Times. But there's something about really just getting it from the source in this form where you realize that the Bannon that we see on this side of the mirror is very selective. Like we see Steve Bannon when he's getting dragged away in handcuffs. They will never shut me up, they kill me first. I have not yet begun to fight. We see him when there's a fiery quote of him encouraging rioters ahead of January 6th and, or talking about putting heads on sticks. Second term kicks off with firing Ray, firing Fauci. Now, I actually want to go a step farther, but I realize the pre president is a kind-hearted man and a good man. I'd actually like to go back to the old uh, times of Tudor England. I'd put the heads on pikes, right? I'd put them at the two corners of the White House as a warning. And that is a, a real part of Steve Bannon, and, and he is a very dangerous figure who has been building this internationalist coalition of the most far-right parties in Europe and in Latin America, we should pay close attention to that the part of his project. But what I found more chilling was the way he would combine this racist, xenophobic, transphobic agenda with elements of the left that were very recognizable to me. Every news show, MSNBC, New York Times, all of it is sponsored by, brought to you by Pfizer. For instance, he would do a montage audio on his show where he would cut together the intros and outros of various cable news shows on NBC, MSNBC and CNN that said, brought to you by Pfizer, brought to you by Pfizer. And this was like recognizable to me as media studies 101. Some of the work that I did in No Logo about corporate media consolidation what worried me about it was not that he was doing it. What worried me was that it was a reminder that the left wasn't doing it anymore, <laughs> that we that there was not a serious movement on the left that was focused on corporate power. And that is Bannon's playbook. He finds issues that the left and liberals are really not using anymore. I spent years thinking you were the devil, no disrespect. And now I'm so happy to have you in the trenches, you know, along with other people across the political spectrum fighting. So he's doing that with opposition to big tech, big pharma, and the people who he calls the warrior moms, who he says are all listening to Naomi Wolf. So that's, that's what chills me. Not so much that, that she sees something that she can get out of him, which frankly is a little bit boring. Like she obviously get a new audience and she can sell books, but what is he getting out of her? And what he's getting out of her is a new section of the Democratic Party coalition that he's hoping to peel off 
and get back in the White House for, as he says on his show, a hundred years. Naomi, your book also explores other apparently unlikely alliances between, say, wellness hippies who are into crystals and healing and others who are extremely right wing and into QAnon. What do you think is going on there? So I make a distinction between the far left and the far out. And the far out, if you'll forgive me, you know, is more of the woo-woo world. And it's not everybody who is into new age um, and wellness. But there is a section of that world that has really taken on this idea that our only defense in a very cruel and unequal world is to perfect ourselves, perfect our bodies, turn inwards. And there's a way that that hyper-individualism in the wellness world rhymes quite easily with the hyper-individualism of extreme capitalism. And that's, I think, how you get the kind of you know, author of Oshi Glow's cookbooks at the trucker convoy in Ottawa with a bunch of guys waving Confederate flags. Coming up, finding a route out of the mirror world. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. A lot of people would assume it's all right to dismiss what they consider wackadoodle theories and online jabbering. But you make quite a different case in the book and admit that this is a mistake that you've previously made. Can you explain that a bit to me? Well, 
in North America, it's very clear that this is not a marginal part of our political discourse. I mean, especially when you have figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, in Congress, you know, I think telling ourselves like, oh, this is too silly to pay attention to is frankly very arrogant. We don't have the power to turn these people off. They have their own platforms. They have their own systems of advancing their worldview and their political agenda. And I think we ignore it at our peril. Nemi, what do you say to people who have friends, partners, families who have succumbed to this alternate reality and are experiencing for the first time something akin to existential whiplash? How can they be brought back? Well, you know, this is one of the main reasons why I wrote the book, because I think there are ways that we can connect with friends, family members, colleagues who seem to be a doppelganger of their former selves. You know, I think that there are bridges that can be put down to try to give people a graceful exit. And it's not about laughing at them or making them feel stupid. You know, people are concerned about big pharma. Say you're concerned about big pharma too. I mean, I I know I am. We need actual policy responses that makes the kind of profiteering from the pandemic that happened under cover of the vaccines. You know, we should we should have policy responses to that. Because I think when people are hurting. If nobody is offering them a real solution, then they will accept the counterfeit. And all the research shows that people are most likely to walk across that bridge if it is being extended by somebody who they know and trust. You know, I'm not going to get them through. Like, they're not going to read my book, but maybe they'll listen to their sister or their friend or their niece. And, you know, there's some cases where it really isn't safe to have these conversations. And if that's the case, I'm not saying that you should do it. But if it is safe and you can stand it, I, I wouldn't give up on people. We also write in the book that in one sense, the whole doppelganger confusion with Nomi Wolf bothered you because maybe you cared too much about what people on Twitter said and that you felt your own self was disappearing under Nomi Wolf's name. Did writing this book help you let go of that in any way or give you a sense of closure? So I think a through line in the book is that all of these ways that we engage in doubling ourselves, whether it is trying to perfect our personal brands or trying to perfect our perfectly well bodies, they're all ways in which the self takes up too much space. You know, in a way I get it. Margaret Thatcher told us there is no such thing as society. We have all received the message that we are on our own in these roiling seas. And so we turn inward, we turn to the self, but we really are living at an intersection of surging authoritarianism, white supremacy, the climate emergency, and none of these crises can we solve on our own just by perfecting ourselves. So we're all going to have to hold ourselves a little less tightly, spend a a little less time and labor perfecting ourselves and a little more time finding each other and building coalitions that are capable of standing up to these forces. So in really giving myself over to the confusion and learning to laugh about it and just accepting the absurdity of it, I can say that, yes, I've learned to to take myself a little less seriously. I couldn't have written a book like this without that. And I feel strangely free. (laughs) Naomi, thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was the author, Naomi Klein. Her book, Doppelganger, is out now. We reached out to Naomi Wolf for this podcast. She declined to comment. 
if you want to hear more. Guardian Live are hosting an event with Nomi Klein and Zoe Williams on Wednesday the 27th of September. There are tickets available in person in Manchester and there is streaming access available online. For more details, visit theguardian.live. That's it for today. I'm Nasheen Iqbal and this episode was produced by Sammy Kent. Sound design was by Solomon King. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back again tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.